Hey everybody, hello, hello there, welcome back to the show. It's Mike Schaefer here, it's the How to Sleep Podcast, the show designed to just read manuals, um, you know, a variety of things to help people sleep. So I'm hoping you're here to, to get some rest and enjoy. Uh, and I think you're going to learn um, a few new things, perhaps, as I venture get in the, the time machine and go way back to the late 1800s to share some scientific American information with you. Um, I should say information from a scientific American publication um, and a special edition, the Builders and, um, I believe it's Architects Edition, um, Architects and Builders Edition. So, welcome. Thanks for coming along and listening in. So, um, hope everyone's well. I, um, I guess to preface this, this article, I, um, over, uh, the holiday break, I, uh, I stayed in, uh, an old hotel, the oldest hotel in, in Chattanooga. Tennessee called the Reed House, R-E-A-D, um, and it was beautiful, and uh, I love, it was originally found, uh, built in the late 1800s and then um, rebuilt in the early 1900s, um, I forget the exact dates, maybe 1920 or 27, I forget, and um, all the same, uh, classical, beautiful, beautiful hotel. Um, um, with a lot of character and 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 just a really a very rich mood and environment of the hotel that I loved um, that you could just walk around and look at visit the ballrooms and and um, you know a, a library and I'm also a sucker for any any hotel that has a room just literally named after a color and it's very um, you know, it's it's the it's exactly what it describes. It's very specific. The green room was green, and um, and so I loved it. It got me in the mood. And then I guess I had some friends talking about the board game Clue, which I've talked about on this show um, a few times. One of my favorite games of all time, and uh, and the the Clue House um, also has a lot of character and a lot of different rooms in it. Um, and so that had me thinking. And I wanted to wind back time and, and get back into a Scientific American episode, which if you are new to the show or have just started and, and haven't um, listened to any of the Scientific American episodes, um, they're, they're different, um, for sure. And reading the articles that I choose from, from the you know variety of their old publications from the late 1800s, and, and I, I just think it's a, a different approach to manuals they're not manuals per se but there's a lot of information and and creating um and and the science behind way things are done whether it's printing or or things like that so um i dug into project gutenberg which is if you look at the show notes you'll you'll see the the link there you can definitely read along and, and I have only selected a, a small handful of excerpts from this um, issue, um, but Gutenberg has a lot of different old old publications that you can read through. So, if this interests you by any means, definitely um, peruse that and 
and read and, and let me know if you, you find anything you'd love me to read too. I'd be happy to, to check that out. Um, but that's, that's what brings us to now to me reading, um, today's episode. So, um, Scientific American, this is, and I, <laughs> I should not have gotten, or maybe I should. I think it's great that I got so excited when I saw it was in Architects and Builders edition of Scientific American. Um, and I, I, I come from a, a long family of brick masons. My dad, my uncle, both my grandpas, um, my dad's uncle long line of brick masons and um i worked around you know basements and fireplaces and, and chimneys and um anything you can imagine with with building um growing up and it wasn't for me i really did not have the talent for it but what i do have is an interest and curiosity and and watching people construct um buildings and, and anything for that nature. I think it's a fascinating um, ability that people possess. And and so uh, having grown up watching my dad and and whatnot um, build, um, and I would help. I was the muscle more than anything. Um, but uh, I also grew up watching shows like This Old House, where you, you watch people, um, which is still very much going um, uh, and you watch uh, people craft things and carpenters and what they can do with their hands and their minds for sure. And combining those two fascinates me time and time again. And so I get a, uh, I get a little dorky and, and nerd out when I get to the scientific American um, supplement. And especially when it's an architects and builders edition. So what I've done for you all today and what I will be doing is I'm going to read a few excerpts from this. The ones that jumped out at me, I could read the whole thing, but that would be hours and hours of reading. And so I think we'll be able to get back to this um, for more in the future, but I've um, selected a few sections that I'm going to read. So um, sit back and relax and and, uh, and take a deep breath and... Um, Let's get into it. So, Scientific American Architects and Builders Edition. This is a published New York, December of 1887. Um, this is some some pretty cool stuff. Subscription is two hundred or two hundred two dollars and fifty cents a year. A single copy is twenty five cents. So. To give you an idea, the cost back in the late 1800s. All right, let's get started. So, the Shakespeare Memorial at Stratford upon Avon. Another thing I love, real quick, about this is this is not just that it is Scientific American, but we definitely get coverage all over the world. So it's a very comprehensive, um, for the most part. Um, to my knowledge, um, look at science and, and in this case, architecture and builders. So, the Shakespeare Memorial at Stratford-upon-Avon. The American veneration for the birthplace of Shakespeare is well known, and it has just taken practical shape by the presentation to the town of a public drinking fountain and clock tower 
the gift of an American citizen, Mr. George W. Childs of Philadelphia, in commemoration of the Jubilee of Queen Victoria. The memorial has been erected in Rother Street, a broad, open space near the center of the town, where several thoroughfares converge, and where the annual statute fairs, or mops, take place. The structure is handsome and imposing, and is built of peterhead granite for the fountain, and of hard freestone for the clock tower. The base of the tower is square, with projecting buttresses at the four corners, terminating in acutely pointed gablets, surmounted by a lion bearing the arms of Great Britain, alternately with the American eagle and the stars and stripes. Appropriate inscriptions are engraved on the four sides of the memorial. The tower terminates in a spire, beneath and surrounding which are smaller spires and turrets. The whole height of the structure is 50 feet. The architect is Mr. Jethro A. Cossons of Birmingham. The ceremony of inaugurating the fountain was performed on Monday, October 17th, by Mr. Henry Irvin, in the presence of the mayor, Sir Arthur Hodgkins, KCMG, the corporation, and a distinguished company of visitors. Sympathetic letters were read from Mr. J. Russell Lowell, Lowell and Mr. Whittier. And speeches were delivered by Mr. Irving, by Mr. Phelps, the American minister, Mr. Walter of the Times, Sir Theodore Martin, and others. London Graphic. All right. A Tower on the Mount of Olives. The tower, which is being erected by the Russians on the highest point of the Mount of Olives, is already several stories high, but one more is to be added. The object is to make it so high that both the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea may be seen from the top. A number of bells will be placed in the tower. In digging the foundation, several Christian graves were found, together with an inscription in Greek in which the word Stephanus could yet be deciphered. Okay. Moving on. A correction. In our November number, an error was made in the estimate given for the $2,500 house illustrated in our colored plate. The cost should have been stated at $3,400. In some way, the bill for mason work and painting was omitted. These additions and other modifications bring the cost up to the above sum. A Suburban Residence One of our colored plates this month represents a suburban dwelling built of dark trap rock, trimmed with buff brick, and roofed with ornamental stamped iron plates. It is now being constructed in New Jersey by day's work at a cost of about $9,250. The following is an abstract from the, uh, from the specifications. Mason work. Excavating. Excavation under the entire house to a depth of about four feet. Cellar walls. Cellar walls built of good-sized trap rock. All necessary bluestone sills, cellar steps, and copings. 
fine-tooled brownstone steps for stoops, also fine-tooled brownstone sills for the doors and windows above cellar. Walls. All stone walls above cellar are medium-sized trap rock and well-selected, pointed with black mortar. Brick trimmings. Buff brick used for trimmings, as shown on the plans, laid in mortar, same color as brick. Chimneys. Chimneys built of trap rock and buff brick, and topped out as shown on the plans. Fireplaces. Fireplaces built were shown of white fire brick, and the hearths laid in tile. Stone steps. Stone steps from main entrance to ground. Porch floor. Porch floor is cemented with Portland cement. Cementing. The entire cellar bottom is cemented three inches thick with concrete and Portland cement. Plastering. The entire first and second stories are plastered three coat work, hard finished. Cornices in principal part of first story and second story hall. Center pieces and rooms to correspond. Carpentry. Timber. Timber all well-seasoned spruce. Floor timbers 2 inches by 10 inches, 12 inches on centers. Studding 3 inches by 4 inches. Main rafters 2 inches by 8 inches, 24 inches on center. Cornice. The cornice is formed of wood heavily molded. Roof. The rafters are covered with hemlock boards, then covered with ornamental iron plates laid on tar felt. Valleys and gutters, XX tin. Leaders, galvanized iron. The ridge is ornamental ironwork. Floors. The floors throughout are double. The upper floors are narrow white pine, except hall and kitchen. The hall is narrow oak. The kitchen, narrow white maple. The bathrooms are white maple. The main hall is paneled wainscot, four foot high. Kitchen and bathrooms wainscoted with narrow beaded strips of maple. The trimmings throughout, except main hall, will be selected white pine. Hall to be of white oak. Doors to be six paneled. Main stairs and how do you say that? Main stairs and balustrade to be white oak. Other stairs white pine with Georgia pine treads. Inside blinds throughout. Plain bronze hardware on principal part of first story. Jet and bronze for balance. Painting. The wood and ironwork on the outside will be painted three coats. The inside will be wood filled and have two coats of hard oil. Plumbing. The apparatus for plumbing work located as shown on the plans to be piped and arranged for water pressure. Range. The kitchen to have an approved low down range fitted in fireplace. Heater. There will be placed in the cellar a number 14 combination steam and hot air heater. Estimate of cost. Mason work complete, $4,400. Carpenter and roof work, $3,400. Painting, $200. Plumbing, gas pipes, etc., $650. Steam heating, $1,000.
600. Total $9,250. Okay. Or as we scroll down the article, the publication. Bamboo Tree. Writing from China, a correspondent says that the Chinese have developed the culture of the bamboo tree very wonderfully. They can produce a perfectly black as well as a yellow bamboo. The emperor of China has one officer whose duty is to look after his bamboo gardens. This valuable tree is found in all tropical and subtropical regions, both in the eastern and western hemispheres. An attempt has been made in England, and with some success, to raise a dwarf species found at an altitude of 12,000 feet in the Himalaya Mountains. The New World furnishes bamboo of the greatest diameter. The stems are usually very slender, but in the northwestern part of South America is found one species with a diameter of 16 inches. The Chinese put this plant to a greater variety of uses than any other people. Some kinds of it, when it first shoots up from the ground, are used as a vegetable as we use asparagus, or it can be pickled in vinegar, or made into delicious sweetmeats. The plant has to be 30 years old to blossom, and then it bears a great profusion of seeds and dyes. These seeds may be used like rice, and a kind of beer may be made from them. In 1812, severe famine in portions of China was prevented by the sudden blossoming of a great number of bamboo trees. The stems of all the varieties are remarkably silicious. One kind found in Java is so hard that it strikes fire when the hatch is applied to it. This has only a very slender stem, which is polished and used as stems for tobacco pipes. This protean tree furnishes material for houses, boats, cordage, sails of boats, telescopes, aqueduct pipes, waterproof thatching, clothing, water wheels, fences, chairs, tables, bookcases, boxes, hats, umbrellas, shields, spears, and paper. The pith is used for lamp wicks, so there is no part of it that cannot be used for something. From some of it, exquisite carvings inlaid with gold and silver are cut that exceed in beauty the ivory carvings for which the Chinese are so famed. Recently, it has been put to another use. Mr. Edison has found that the carbonized fibers of the bamboo furnish the best material for the incandescent electric lamp, and has made use of it in his system of lighting. In Burma and Siam, whole cities are built from bamboo. These houses are made in pieces, lashed together, and raised on posts several feet high. The Lumber World. I like that one. Alright. An Egyptian Temple. An Egyptian temple appears to have been one of the most imposing assemblages of buildings that can be well conceived. Avenues lined with hundreds of sphinxes on each side led the worshipper to the sacred precinct for the distance of thousands of feet, and thus the mind, even when remote from the vicinity of the temple, 
received an impression calculated to excite veneration. This avenue was terminated by a stupendous mass of pyramidal form above 200 feet wide and about 80 feet high, whose enormous proportion was not diminished by the vastness of the plain in which it stands, nor by contrast with the mountains that overhung it. In the center of this propylium is a door, flanked and advanced by an obelisk on each side, about 90 feet high, and besides, beside which are figures of colossal dimensions, 45 feet high, sitting as guardians of the sacred portal. The effect of the whole is gigantic, and calculated to impress the coming worshipper with the fullest notions of his insignificance in the scale of material nature. The triumphal gateway being passed, a magnificent court meets the eyes of the beholder, having on each side a colonnade, and this court led to a densely columned hall or vestibule, under the shades of which the crowds of Egypt's sons and daughters reposed to recover from the exhaustion and fatigue caused by their journey under a burning sun to the fane of their creature god. And here the mind also dwelt a while on the first impressions produced by the contemplation of the overpowering majesty of the gorgeous mass. For the huge propylae, which enclosed either end of the court and the hall, with its forest of clustered columns, which the eye could not number, and the playful variety and copiousness of channeled hieroglyphics, which left not a space uncovered, and the brilliancy of the pigment which gave an endless variety to the shafts and capitals of the columns, to the beams, the walls and ceilings, bewildered the attention, and left not a moment of repose to the wondering stranger. A lofty central avenue of columns, above sixty feet high, forming, as it were, the triumphal way, leads under a third portal, of dimensions by no means inferior to the others just mentioned, and marked with what care and with what sanctity the priests guarded every approach to the inner parts of the temple. But this gateway passed, and a scene the most sublime burst upon the view. An ample peristyle, much larger than the one already passed, presented itself to the eye, probably planted with trees, crowded with metaphoric statues. On either hand, a double avenue of columns, less for convenience than dignity of effect. In the center uprose the portico of the mass of building that formed the temple itself, the columns in dimension more lofty and decorations more rich in proportion more graceful than those of the courts. The dynasties that had ruled over the country up to the period of the erection of this temple have their histories graven on the walls and on the columns. The same pyramidal form gives an appearance of endless durability to the mass, which is surmounted by an immense hollowed cavetto, having the center occupied by the sculptured form of the agathodemon, or winged globe and serpents, with outstretched wings extending over the center in a collation of the façade, and seemingly a being of another world. Admitted beneath this porch, the minds of the worshippers are prepared for the gloomy inner penetralia, where every object was mysterious and emblematic. Numerous doorways closed by curtains succeeded each other, and led from vestibule to vestibule, which hindered the eye from penetrating with sacrilegious gaze into the inmost sanctuary, all access to it being forbidden to the multitude. To these vestibules the light of day was denied, 
and the mind was subdued by the gloom of the spot, for the attention was absorbed by the contemplation of the sacred mysteries of the place, and by the effects produced on the attention by the huge incongruous figures of granite, monstrous reflections of the gloomy minds of the religious inhabitants of the sacred precinct, who sought to deify matter and the animal instincts. T.L. Donaldson Ooh. Beautifully written, a mouthful to read. Continuing on. Sawdust. Sawdust has been a source of worry and expense to millmen in various ways, though it is to be admitted that in utilizing it to some extent as fuel, they have in part solved the problem of its economical disposition. Lately, there has sprung up a certain demand for it, and the problem of its cheap shipment is now one that presents itself. A Yankee inventor has tried bailing it, and it appears to have devised a scheme that accomplishes the purpose successfully. He makes the sawdust into bales, and has progressed so far as to be able to compress 32 cubic feet, or a quarter of cord, into a package 3 feet long by 2 feet on each of its sides. As this occupies only 12 cubic feet, the reduction is 62.5% of its original bulk. The machine used is nothing more than an ordinary hydraulic press, which is arranged in a manner similar to a hay or cotton press. The sawdust is pressed into bales and at the same time enclosed in a burlap covering, making a neat and easily handled package for shipment. Small pieces of wood, shavings, etc. may be baled with the sawdust or separately with equal facility. It appears a simple method of putting this bulky stuff in convenient shape for shipment, and it would seem might be employed to advantage wherever a market can be found for this species of mill refuse. The Timberman Okay. Moving on. An Unsafe Church About a month ago, Inspector of Buildings Griffin discovered that the wall on the southern side of the Warren Avenue Baptist Church, Boston, Massachusetts, was bulging. He climbed the roof and was astonished to find that the scissors truss that supported the pitch of the roof was not bolted together, but was fastened only with railroad spikes. The wall was out of plumb fully nine inches. A peremptory order was issued to vacate the church. Then a more careful examination was made, with startling results. The truss was laid bare, and then it was discovered that the sole support for the roof of the great building consisted of three iron rods, one and one-half inches in diameter. The cross rods were of no use, because the wood had shrunk away and the bolts could be rattled. The upper and lower cords of the truss were made of eight two-inch planks, and where the cross rods had been put through and clinched, the auger had cut off one plank, and part of another, weakening the truss by one-eighth. The lower cord of the truss was cut completely through in two places. It is said that it will cost nearly $200,000 to repair the church, which is one of the largest in the city. It would not be a bad idea for the trustees of other churches to have the trusses carefully examined.
Moving on. A $2,500 California house. California can justly boast of a large number of pretty places and picturesque localities in which to erect residences of moderate cost that can be found in or than can be found in any other state in the Union. The beautiful town of Alameda, covering as it does a large extent of ground, embracing several square miles, may be regarded as a paradise for those who wish a quiet retreat, away from the din and confusion of the city and yet be in close connection with the Great Mart. Nearly every portion of the town is covered with a natural growth of oak trees. Nor does this growth stop at this point. For a long distance to the north, the ground is covered by the beautiful trees from which the neighboring city of Oakland derives its name. Extremes meet in architecture as well as other, other, as other matters. Some aesthetic persons have sought to copy the humble abode of the laborer in the external view of a dwelling, while the internal arrangements and fittings rival those of Aladdin's palace. Others seek to have the outside present to the eye, a conglomeration of whimsical ideas, while they have not deigned, deigned to cover the floors with a carpet, nor have a door between any of the rooms or halls, excepting those connecting with the outer world. Much benefit has been derived from these whimsical erections, and it is only by much study and close application to the fancies of their clients that architects have been enabled to prepare the beautiful bijou plans, a good representation of which is given in this issue. In justice to the architectural profession, we must say that no portion of their practice has been so usefully bestowed as that which has been bestowed upon the production of plans for such homes a full plan of which accompanies this article. The elevation, as shown, is a model of neatness and economy. At once attractive in appearance and substantial in all its surroundings, it does away with all those horrible idiosyncrasies and bugbears of the Elizabethan and Queen Anne styles. There are no small windows to cause the one who cleans them to utter a whole vocabulary of cuss words at the architect who made, who made so many corners to dig out. There is no part of California but what needs all the sunshine that was intended to enter a room, and the large windows shown allow, shown allow the heat and light to make glad the hearts of the dwellers therein. Even with the thermometer at 100 degrees and over in the shade at noontime, still, when evening comes, the cool winds that invariably bless the sleep of those who are tired from their daily toil has easy ingress from the, these same large windows. And in winter, from the absence of snow in all of our beautiful valleys, the same windows are a source of joy and comfort for the occupants to observe the driving rains or admit the blessed sunshine as it pierces through the wintry clouds. Great care should be exercised in painting the exterior. The colors selected should be a happy blending of light and dark shades. They should be graded from rich, heavy grades at the bottom to the lighter tones of the gable peaks, preserving through the intermediate section a consistent harmony. The roof may be of dark slate color. The trimmings may be colored with a combination of blue, black, and Indian red. The body of the house may be varied to suit the above. It must be distinctly borne in mind that all buildings of the same class cannot be treated alike, 
Trees have a wonderful effect on colors used, and the main study of the painter and owner should be that the salient points of form and detail be enhanced by the proper selection of the various colors. By all means, if you are building a home for yourself, take the good wife into your confidence and let her judgment be given on the various colors to be used. And again, we have blueprints in this article too. Good pictures, great to follow along with and check out. All right. Section and elevation of side porch and railing. The arrangement of the rooms as shown by the plan is very desirable for any one with a small family. A feature is made of the entranceway. From the hall, one can pass either to the parlor or dining room, the latter being the general sitting room. The parlor is large, 13 by 17 feet in size. It has a fireplace as shown. A cornice is also designated. Sliding doors connect this room with the dining room, the size of the latter being 12 by 17 and 3 quarters feet. A cornice and fireplace are also shown. In case of company or family gathering, the two rooms will be practically one. The porch shown in front will be very handy for the gentlemen who smoke or, on warm days, the ladies can use the same for sewing purposes, sheltered, as the plans show, by the roof overhead. You pass from this room into a hall, from which you can enter all the rest of the rooms. The main chamber is 12 feet 6 inches by 16 feet 6 inches, besides a large bay window having four windows for light and air. There is also a cornice in this room and a place for a stove to connect with parlor chimney. There is a very large closet and also washroom, which is well lighted and ventilated. Passing along the hall, we next come to a large linen closet. This will be found very serviceable for the storage of the linen and daily use. Then comes a large chamber, 11 feet 6 inches by 12 feet. No cornice is shown. Should a fire be needed in this room, a patent flue could be placed therein, starting from near the ceiling. A large closet is also connected with this room. At the end of the hall is the bathroom, 6 feet 3 inches by 9 feet 6 inches. A wash bowl and water closet are shown. The window being directly over the tub assures perfect ventilation. On opposite side of hall from bathroom is a room designated as breakfast room in size 10 by 11 feet with two windows. This can be used as a bedroom, should the dining room suffice for the needs of the occupants of the house. This room is very convenient, as it can be reached by three different ways. The next room is the kitchen, in size 10 by 13 feet, with plenty of light and ample means of ventilation. The place for the stovepipe is indicated by the dotted lines leading to the dining room chimney. Should it be found more desirable to have the stove in a different position from that indicated, a patent flue can be put in, starting near the ceiling. A large pass closet, amply fitted with drawers and shelves, connects with the dining room. There is also a large pantry, fitted up with bins, etc. A stairway is shown, near breakfast room, leading to the attic. No plan is given of the latter, as the space can be divided according to the individual taste of the party's building. The rear hall is 3 feet 6 inches wide. The whole plan is very compact and will be careful study. 
and will bear careful study. The detailed drawings, as shown, will give an adequate idea of the various finishes. Each one is distinctly marked. We append a general set of specifications to aid those who may see fit to adopt the design. Should any want a complete set, we can forward them a printed copy. Specifications Excavations All rock, dirt, etc. to be cleared away from site of the building. Trenches for walls and piers to be extended down to firm and solid ground. The bank to be dug well away from the walls, and the same to be left open until the walls are well set and dry. Drains To be of ironstone pipe with cemented joints. The fall to be not less than one-fourth inch to one foot. No drains to be less than 16 inches from surface of ground. Brickwork Hard, well-burned brick to be used throughout. All brick walls to be made level and straight to the proper and exact height, and to a true line from one end to the other, even to the splitting of a brick where necessary. Piers 12 by 12 inches. Turn trimmer arches for the support of all hearths at the time chimneys are built. All sills to be set in mortar after walls are proper height. Size of timbers, etc. Main sills 6 by 8 inches. Plates 2x4, studs 2x4, underpinning 4x6, joists 2x10, ceiling joists 2x4, rafters 2x4, bridging 2x3 and 2x4. Studs and joists spaced 16 inches from center, rafters 2 feet 8 inches from center, underpinning 2 feet 8 inches from, two feet eight inches from center, all timber below main sills to be of redwood. Roof to be sheathed with 1x6 Oregon pine, well nailed to every rafter. Gutters arranged so as to carry off water wherever directed. Rustic. All laps and butt joints to be painted before being nailed in position. Butt joints to have a 3x11 inch piece of tin to keep out water. Outside steps to be built upon strong stringers inch risers of redwood, and two-inch treads of organ pine with nosing in Scotia. The recess to front hall will be floored six inches below main floor with three-inch organ pine put together with white lead. Floors. Organ pine, tongued and grooved, four inches wide to be used throughout the house. One tongue nail and one through nail to be driven in each piece at each nail end. Grounds to be of three-quarter inch organ pine at all openings. No inside finish to be put on until the last coat of plastering is on. Face casings to be six inches wide and one and a quarter inches thick with suitable plinths. Sash beads to be fastened on with raised head screws. All interior work to be hand smoothed and sandpapered. All carved or planted on work to be primed before putting on. Bases in all rooms to be 10 inches wide with 2 inch molding. Wainscoting. Rear hall, kitchen, and breakfast room to be wainscoted 3 feet high and capped with nosing in Scotia. Bathroom, 6 feet high all around. Pantry and pass closet to be fitted up with shelves and hooks complete and bins and drawers as shown. Lathing. 
Good sound lathe to be used laid on not less than 3 eighths of an inch apart. Joints broken over 8 lathes. No lathe to be put on vertically to finish out to corners or angles. Neither must there be any lathe run through angles and behind studding from one room to another. All angles to be formed and nailed solid by carpenter before lathes are put on. Plastering. All walls, partitions, and ceilings to be plastered one coat of wall-haired mortar made of best lime and clean, sharp sand, free from loam and salt, using best cattle hair, to be made at least eight days before using. Brown coat to be covered with a good coat of best white hard finish. All plastering to extend to the floor. Centerpieces where designated on plans. Painting. All interior woodwork to have three coats of best white lead in such tints as may be approved by the owner. Kitchen floor to be oiled two coats. Gas pipes to be introduced so as to give the number of lights shown on plan. Plumbing. Water pipes to be galvanized iron three quarters of inch diameter. No half inch pipe to be used. A 40 gallon galvanized iron boiler with necessary connections to be placed in the kitchen. Sink to be of size shown by drawing to have two inch iron water pipe and a garland trap. Three and a half inch brass strainer. Back of sink to be lined with zinc. Slop hoppers to be placed as shown. Wash basins to be located as per plan and to have all necessary hot and cold water connections. Water from all basins to discharge into an open slop hopper outside. Bathtub to be lined with number 12 zinc to have a one and a quarter inch waist with garland trap. All necessary fixtures for bathtub to be placed in proper position. The water closet to be Bud's patent. Place safe trays under all sinks, bathtub, wash basins, water closets, etc with two inch turned up edges well nailed to woodwork. Three fourths inch wastes. All waste or soil pipes to be connected with the sewer and extend the same above basins, sinks, bathtub, water closets, etc. out through the roof. Generally, drawings and specifications are intended to correspond and to be illustrative the one of the other. All drawings to be furnished by the architect. Details to be given from time to time as the work progresses. Should the necessity arise that any change or changes be made from the original design, the owner shall have the right so to do without invalidating the contract, adding to or deducting from the contract price the agreed sum of any change made. Cost the above specifications are given as a general index of the work. No accurate estimate can be given from them of the cost of the house. Quality and price of hardware, etc. have been omitted, leaving same to the pocketbooks of intending builders. As shown with finishes indicated by the details given, the house can be erected at a cost of about $2,500. Of course, this figure can be changed considerably. Using the best of materials, etc., the price should be given at $3,000, at which sum a truly cozy home can be obtained by those seeking a permanent dwelling place. California Architect. All right.
getting there. We're moving on. Three, three more little articles to go. Starting with how to build an ice house. Under this head, the American architect advises the correspondent as follows. Step one, the ice house floor should be above the level of the ground, or at least should be sufficiently above some neighboring area to give an outfall for a drain, put it in such a way as to keep the floor clear of standing water. Step two, the wall should be hollow, a four inch lining wall tied to the outer wall with hoop iron and with a three inch airspace would answer, but it would be better if the airspace is thoroughly drained to fill it with mineral wool or some similar substance to prevent the movement of the air entangled in the fibers and thus check the transference by convection of heat from the outside to the lining wall. Step three, a roof of thick plank will keep out heat far better than one of thin boards with an air space under it. Step four, shingles will be much better for roofing than slate. And step five, it is best to ventilate the upper portion of the building. If no ventilation is provided, the confined air under the roof becomes intensely heated in summer and outlets should be provided at the highest part with inlets at convenient points to keep the temperature of the air over the ice at least down to that of the exterior atmosphere. All right. Two, two, go. Just have to scroll down a little bit and we'll get there. The backyard. Our immediate ancestors had their farmhouse with its necessary accompaniment of granaries, barn, etc. We moved to town and built our shingle palace or brick mansion with its large front show window in which the well-preserved, gilt-edged family Bible and the Rogers group have it in which the other for supremacy and set up in our backyard to represent the outbuildings of our ancestry, a privy, a pile of slab wood, generally as dumped, a few barrels, perhaps a cheap stable. Not then satisfied with the amount of decaying wood about the premises, we lay a lot of woodwalk. Walking along the avenue, we see a pretentious residence. It must be occupied by people of great refinement, for it is not the most prominent room in the house of the house, the library, the whole street side taken up with an immense bay window, the glass reached nearly to the floor. How splendidly it was lighted as we passed last night. What elegant sets of books on the shelves. Plenty of pictures, too. Let us today take a look at the backyard. Why do not these people board up the windows at the back of the house? Here is a well with a dirty puddle by it, the pump standing on a rotting platform, hard by some kitchen garbage, farther on ashes, and so it goes, the whole rear of the lot so bad as to a discouraged vegetable life even. It is mercifully screened in part from the general view by a high, unpainted board fence, against which now and then a weed or tuft of grass grows. Where is there a better field for the crusade? The rear of the house and the outbuildings, though not so expensively finished, have a right to be carefully and artistically done. A woodshed is not a nuisance if enclosed, well boarded and painted, and the wood kept inside. 
a privy has no right to exist. If there be no proper system of drainage in the house for a water closet, partition off an earth closet from the woodshed or stable. Tasteful, well-cared-for outbuildings and fences are not only an offense to the artistic sense, but are rather pleasing, indicating thrift, tidiness, and comfort. But when we consider the opportunities they offer for the support of the vine morning glories, sweet peas, nasturtiums, climbing roses, and like forms of plant life, what a joyous recompense, recompense for so little labor and care. Then all the available backyard space that is not used for walks, drives, etc. should give either vegetables or flowers, minister to the comfort or culture of the family. Listen to people who lament the bad influences of street associations upon the children. Yet they say, very reasonably, the children must have outdoor air, etc., and they have never considered that the only alternative, for, alternative from the housing of the children is the freedom of the streets. They do not know what moral education is contained in a few feet of ground, congenial work for the hands, and the prettiest of life development studies for the mind. Give each of these street-loving children a flower bed, a small set of garden tools, some flower seeds, and what help and advice they need, and note that there be not germs of nobler thoughts and desires taking root at the same time in their fertile natures. But, to moralize a little, there is a kinship between the ornamented front and disgraceful rear of a residence and the fine clothes in the false heart of the wearer, and we fear that the majority of people who inhabit that sort of residence would rather risk some contamination of their children's characters than to see their faces, hands, and clothes besmeared with Mother Earth. The backyard of the future will be a bower of flowers and greenery and the leisure hour resort of the family. N.W. Architect And finally, last but not least, Pine Woods. The sights and sounds of Pine Woods, the comfort and delight of walking in them, cannot be half told in a short paragraph. They are also as, as sanitary as they are pleasing and beautiful. It is said that the air of the Black Forest does more to revive and cure weekly patients than gallons of medicine. And from experience of the odors of pines at night, or in the early morning and dewy eve, I should say they were not only antiseptic, but strengthening as a dose of quinine. The living leaves, as well as the dead and slowly decomposing needles, redolent of healing and strengthening odors, bring back the color to pale cheeks and strength to semi-exhausted constitutions. The shelter of pine forests is also perfect. No matter how the wind thunders and roars among the tops, calm prevails on the surface of the ground. Just as the waves of the ocean are, after all, limited to its surface while a perpetual calm rests on its deeper depths, so the turmoil of the storm exhausts its force on the tops of the trees, while the base of the bowls are hardly moved by it. Hence the superlative value of pines and masses for shelter. The shelter of a large pine wood is unique in character, providing a local atmosphere as genial as it is pleasant. The elasticity of the dead needle seems to get into one's spirits and enables one for the nonce to bid adieu 
to the cares and the ills of life. One saunters along under the shadow of tall pines without fatigue, and can rest on the clean, sweet carpet of dead needles and leaves with little fear of noxious weeds, insects, or malaria. And the whole air is deodorized and charged to the full with health-giving properties by the odor-distributing pines that not only provide warmth and shelter, but health to all who walk under or linger among them. Pine woods in England are mostly too small to furnish to the full all these advantages, but the black forests of Scotland, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, and Russia are massive enough to furnish shelter, shadow, rest, and health to those wise enough to seek for either amid their grand trunks or under their dense, dark masses of branches and leaves. The Garden Well, there we have it. That, man, that was fun. It's a mouthful, too. They, it's just the, the writing styles are so different. Um, uh, you know, if you read a lot, um, and, and maybe you, uh, it's, it's interesting. Now that I think I, I, I um, listened to the audio book of Charles Dickens' um, Christmas Carol before the holidays and his writing style, it's, it's, it's similar. Um, and and it's just a lot different from from a lot of the, the articles I'm reading, especially a typical how-to manual, but um, with instructions. But um, it's still different. Uh, like some of the the blogs, for instance, the the uh, the prime rib last week and the molasses cookies. How um, noticing those differences, and in a good way too. I, I love all different styles of writing. That's why I love love recording these episodes and sharing them with you. And it's why I like to go back to the Scientific American Supplement every every now and then to get a little different perspective. Um, this is a pretty fun one. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I hope you did as well. Hope it helped um, your rest and your sleep. Hope you're um, enjoying, I guess, Happy New Year to you all. Hope you're enjoying a good start to 2021. So um, that's all I have apart from, you know, an hour in, almost an hour in, the plug for our social media, How to Sleep Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and of course, How to Sleep um, Podcast at gmail.com with all of your ideas and thoughts and feedback. Um, subscribe to the show if you haven't already. You can get all the updated uh, once a week episodes and then share with friends and family if they want something to, to help them catch some Z's, get some sleep. But in the meantime, as always, appreciate you coming by. Thanks for listening. Um, until next time, I'll. Talk to you all soon. Bye-bye.